absolutely delighted that one of my favorite columnists in the country, Lindy Ware Mazibuko, is joining me for this latest episode of Eusebius on Times Live. Lindy Ware, of course, has been parliamentary leader of the Democratic Alliance, has been an excellent opposition politician, and after that has embarked on a career as the founder of the Apolitical Academy, uh, really concerned with growing a new cadre of South Africans that have a deep commitment to public service and understand the importance of everything from the technocratic requirements of doing so, as well as the values that should underpin ethical uh, public servant behavior. You're listening to Eusebius on Times Live. That's this latest podcast on Times Live. And it's me, Eusebius McKaiser, exploring the major issues of the week. That means you're going to hear a lot of law, politics and ethics, how they intersect and how important these stories are in the life of all South Africans. When people saw their children must know these are sellouts. They put saliva on the paper. Mr. Julius Malema whispered and said, sing it, sing it. And then they shared that zone. No, I'm not going to apologize. Can I have my iPad, please? So they stole it. Lindy, thank you so much for coming on this platform. It is a delight to finally be in conversation with you. I think lunch is long overdue, but in the meantime, we'll at least record a podcast episode. I hope that lunch is a promise. I've seen you at Tasha's before, so I know you do lunch. <laughs> I was, you know, I was, I was, I was saying to Lindy where before we started recording, just that we've got so much to catch up on. I don't even know where to start, but maybe, maybe we can start for those who have followed your career closely, and and mine. I have often uh, critiqued uh, the DA, including when you were part of it, uh, quite. Searingly, some might say, others might use hard, harder words, including a whole chapter on you. I mean, you know, you've made it in life when people are devoting a whole chapter to you in your early part of your, your career still when I wrote the book on the DA. And so maybe my question is just, um, I've always wondered actually, and we've never had this conversation, how you had felt when you were still in the thick of things about political analysts and broadcasters and the way we come to the party uh, in terms mm -hmm. of how we observe what's going on? Yeah, that, that's a very good question. Um, so it's so funny, the things you think that you wrote about me or said about me that I dislike are actually not the ones that I have a problem with. And I'll tell you one, one column you wrote and one op-ed you wrote that I had a real problem with. And yeah. it's actually the only thing of yours that I loathe. Uh, it's a, it was during my, um, my election for leader of the opposition, um, you were comparing me with Athel Trollope and you were asking the question like, who's a better leader? Mm. And you were, you gave him an easier time. You gave him compliments <laughs> he didn't deserve. You made claims about him that weren't true, but you did what every journalist did, which is you gave him the benefit of the doubt and you judged me twice as harshly. And I really, I took it personally from you because you're black and you've experienced that kind of scrutiny before. And I remember thinking like, this is going to be my life. It's going to be like mediocre politicians being compared to me as though they are, we're the same. And I say, and I say that unabashedly because I went, I ran after him because I felt he was mediocre. Yeah. I wouldn't have run against him if we were, 
you know, of the same value set, doing the same things, et cetera, et cetera. I really thought he was not doing the job properly. So to be compared to him in that, Mm. you know, in that morally equivalent way that implied that there are only marginal differences between us, (laughs) I found really offensive. Um, And I knew it had to do with gender and I knew it had to do with race. And you might disagree, but I think that we don't talk enough about how in the media, racism is internalized and, you know, homophobia is internalized and misogyny is internalized. And so the media has this kind of also not perfect, you know, 2020 view of what's happening, but it has its own like inherent biases. I just never expected that kind of sort of analysis from you. And I couldn't understand like why you were doing this to me. I'll have to go back to that column to, to go and self-assess years later. What, what I, what I, where you and I agree to 100%, in fact, I was saying this in Grahamstown to journalism students a couple of days ago, is the myth of objectivity in the media. I unashamedly yeah. own my biases ideologically. When I wake up in the morning um, as a talk show host, I go to work wanting to persuade as many of the country as possible to become liberal egalitarians because I think the world would be a better place if more people were liberals, not the Helen Ziller kind of liberal, liberalism as I would define it, with a deep commitment to egalitarianism. I don't do neutrality. I think it's a complete and utter myth. And I think that we're also not very good at examining how those biases inform the way we write about politics and the way we observe politicians. Mm. I think for many of us as black journalists, uh, we need to own up to the fact that we get triggered by the mere existence of a black person inside the democratic alliance. So besides the gender element, it's like, but Lindy Ware in turn is one of us. How can she mm. how can she be in the same WhatsApp group as these other mm. people with their deep a historical take on the country? And so then mm. we become ungenerous and we need to own it, but our lack of generosity starts with being irked by the mere fact that a black person <laughs> is even trying to become a leader of the Democratic Alliance as we know it. Yeah. So it's it's um this 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 takes me quite sort of um naturally to my next uh, problem with media scrutiny is, um, and again, look, I, I caveat all of this by saying when you go, when, when you run for office, you submit yourself to it. But now that I have a chance to step back, I can look at it and be disappointed. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> the second piece is I would be I was sexually harassed and um, and abused and misused by my political opponents in Parliament mm. on television. Mm. Uh, on camera, in public, in the most visceral and disgusting way, Mm. which, uh, I mean, I I was in therapy at the time just to help me cope with every single day. Although, uh, obviously, it was so committed, again, because I was being held to a high standard. Mm. I was so committed to perfection that I always went out in public and said, it's just like water off a duck's back. Like, I don't don't feel it. I know they're desperate. And that was true. They're desperate. They've got no arguments. So they're resorting to sexism. But there's nothing, there's nothing quite as violent in terms of, um, you know, being catcalled or whatever, Mm. as having it done to you, not in terms of sexual violence in general, but just in that specific category of sexual violence, as being called names, catcalled, you know, told about, you know, your your dress, your legs, your hair, or whatever, mm. on camera, in public. Mm. Then have to go home and, like, 
and think to yourself, like, God, this is my life. Then on your way home to listen to it on the radio, Mm. being reported on like fairly gleefully as though it's very funny. And then to wake up the next morning and then hear shock jocks doing polls, like, did her hair look ridiculous? Is she too fat? And then the worst of all is that like tertiary violence of them being interviewed by the media and having them say the words to you. Mm. What was it like when everyone Mm. was abusing you Mm. in parliament? And it's just like, why would you do that? Why would you say to me, what is it like to be, what do you think it's like? Yeah. Do you think it's nice? Yeah. Do you think I don't care? Do you think I don't know? Am I like not a human being? Mm. <laughs> do I not have feelings? Mm. But I was expected to report on, they never went to the men who did this to me, by the way, right? They never went to the MPs who said these things to me. They came to me mm. and they would say, what was that like? <laughs> How do you deal with the attacks? How do you handle the slings and arrows? And of course, the pressure to be perfect, I had to say, Absolutely. it's fine. Mm. It's fine. But, but there was no other answer that I could give mm. because I had to be fine. I had to carry on. But to add to the burden of my having to be fine by making me scrutinize my own abuse mm. <laughs> instead of holding accountable those who leveraged leverage whatever leveled it against me yeah. um i thought was particularly brutal and thoughtless and it happens to me to this day i totally, I still agree, with that I totally agree with you and one of the many factors that underpin or sustain that kind of secondary and tertiary violence is the unacceptable lack of reflexivity on the part of way too many of us within the media uh, who just get up and shove the mic in your face and then ask the question uh, without any any sort of evidence that you had very carefully selected and edited which lines of questioning and what particular questions are ethically acceptable and journalistically important. Um, I don't think we do, we do nearly enough of that. I want us to talk about, which is the crux of, 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 of why I had reached out to you, a brilliant column you wrote about the current political offering uh, from the DA, and we'll, we'll widen it to talk about their main competitors, the incumbent ANC municipalities, and then some of the other options on the ballot paper for all of us. But uh, before we get there, there's just one brief in-between question about what else you've been up to that I do want to reflect on. Um, And again, it's kind of interesting because it takes us back to what I was saying is our biases as journalists, we get triggered Mm -hmm. by the mere fact that you are a black politician in the DA, yeah, uh, which is really, really weird. But And so I'm not so sure whether you totally deserve all of the praise I'm about to give or whether it's more... (laughs) Whether it's me, yes, li- you might be self directing. <laughs> Whether it's me liberating myself from the biases of journalism, but I have yeah. felt I have felt that after you left the DA and exited formal politics, that you've been particularly relaxed in coming to your own intellectually while abroad, and then coming back. The quality of your columns, I genuinely mean it. I think you are one of the two or three most important columnists in the country. Um, and, and I don't know if it's something about leaving politics that does that. I have felt, other than his latest book, I felt the same about some of the short-form writing of Tony Leon after he was ambassador and he started writing and observing politics. 
Um, so just reflect for me on that a little bit. Has it been psychologically easier being Lindiwe Mazibuko in the last couple of years than when you were mm. parliamentary leader? Yeah, it's not just it's not just psychologically easier. It's actually structurally easier. Um, so I think a lot of people forget I I was elected to parliament in 2009, and after a grueling election campaign in which I had to campaign in my province on the weekends, and then run the party's operation from Cape Town during the week, mm. and um, I came came out the other side just absolutely battered. And like two days after we came back from the Rock Center, the IEC, and you know what the ROC, the Results Operation Center is like, mm. microphones in your face, blah, blah, blah. But if, at the time I was running it as a recently elected but still staff member of the party. So I was running the, back, the background operations. Just after we get back to Cape Town and I'm getting ready to go and do my induction and whatnot, I get this call from Ryan Katsir, who was time was the CEO of the party or he was he was a member of parliament but he was also like the former CEO and he says to me you're about to get a phone call from Helen Ziller I have uh told her that she needs to appoint you as national spokesperson and I was like oh can I just breathe for one second I don't want this job and he's like oh you don't want a job that involves you being on a national platform every single day and I was like but we all know why this is happening (laughs) we know why this is happening right you need somebody black multilingual I get it and he's like fine you get it but what are you going to do with it are you going to say no and walk away or are you going to take it up and use it the way you want to use it so I said fine I'll say yes (laughs) and Strews Bob like you know obviously a few minutes later, the, uh, half an hour later, the phone call comes. Helen, really? Me? Oh, goodness. Okay. <laughs> I'll do it. <laughs> and it's one thing to accept the job, but then she goes and appoints 10 men to her cabinet. And how is my first week in politics? Mm. Defending a decision I didn't take, I had nothing to do with, and that I thought was wrong. Mm. And so people forget that when that's your job for a party, it's kind of like you're protecting the organization you're also helping to build. Mm. But you've got to protect it against itself sometimes. So a lot of the time you go out and you say things that you wouldn't have agreed to Mm. had you been asked. It's part of the reason I ran for opposition leader. Mm. I would go to federal executive meetings. I was an ex-officio member of the FedEx. And I would watch people. And I was ex-officio, which meant I could attend and talk about media impact on stuff but I couldn't vote because I wasn't elected to it. And I would watch people make bad decisions, defend them, blah, blah. And I had like no power. All I could say is this is going to play badly. And, or I'd have to back channel, right? I'd have to back channel with like provincial leaders and whatever, don't do this. But if they did it, you know, if they came out of FedEx and decided we're defending these open toilets, (laughs) like Mm. we didn't do anything wrong then it's my job to go and defend it. It's a party decision. It's been taken. I have a job to do, and this is part of it. And that's the part of my job that gave me sleepless nights. Like how much longer am I going to go on being the face of people's cock-ups when I'm not in the room to actually make sure they don't happen in the first place. So I wanted decision-making power. I also wanted the ability to implement, you know, and change policy uh, but also to be able to to vote and say no and to lobby and say, forget it, we're not doing this. Mm. Um, and we saw how that worked out <laughs> as well. <laughs> but 
but at least I could. Mm. So to answer your question, it's structurally different. You have your own voice when you're outside of politics. You have the party's voice when you're inside politics. And if I had had a period of being a backbencher, just, you know, a chill backbencher who had her own opinions, I could have gone rogue here and there. I could have been like, this ain't me. And you've seen people in the DA do sure. this. You've seen people in the ANC do this. I've never had that freedom. Yeah. I went from being the party spokesperson to leading the party in parliament. And the leadership role is different. It's not that you're defending the indefensible. Mm. It's that you're actually in the middle of a pitched fight for something. Mm. And so part of talking about what you are doing is also talking to the party. Mm. So you lead with your words. You don't just say what you think or offer your opinion kind of but now you now you can and that that freedom must be absolutely fantastic because so, you have your own yeah. intellectual convictions political convictions and although you're broadly liberal you can you can express your particularities in ways that you can't before precisely so let's test and that without, and then it will get us to exactly exactly the present um okay if if he was running in your ward would you vote for john stianesen not in a million years. <laughs> which which of the million reasons for why he is a turnoff would be the most salient if you if you only had a minute to articulate it? So um, I think with with and, and I say this to somebody who used to be very good friends with John Stenhazen. I think as he has acquired power, he has he has lost the ability to self reflect. I think that. For some people, the the more power they amass and the higher they rise, the more important it becomes for them to surround themselves with yes men. Mm. And you need leaders who have the opposite instinct. Mm. So actually, to answer your question, ward councillor, I'd really think about it, actually. Mm. But but if you're asking me to elect this current iteration of John Stenhazen, who is someone who who lives in an echo chamber and does not let in people who bring contrary views. And I say this not out of knowledge, inside a knowledge of any kind. It's just the evidence is very clear. Mm. You can't defend that poster campaign unless you live in an echo chamber. You can't go to a national executive meeting that you have to lead and find out almost as like accidentally that people are voting against you. You don't go into meetings like that without knowing what the outcome is going to be. Mm. So the fact that he doesn't says to me that he's living in an echo chamber, Mm. which... I mean, Tabombegi did the exact same thing, the exact same thing. When you go to Bulukwane and you don't know that you're about to lose, it's because you've surrounded yourself with people who never, ever tell you the truth. Mm. Because if they do, they'll lose favor with you. They'll mm. lose positions. Or you'll be so nasty to them in public as a consequence of them differing with you um, that it's almost not worth the trouble. Mm. And that's a dangerous thing to do with politics. That's the hubris that comes before a fall. You know, so it's, to answer and, question, it's a, and it's such a pity because when we look at the ANC's record, I was saying to an ANC spokesperson earlier that you should not even be a proposition feasibly for any South African, given your track record at local government. And yet when you turn on the telly and you see the latest ad campaign, John Stiernazen himself, you think, Jesus, how many own goals is this guy and this party capable of scoring before the 1st of, of November? And so I want you to reflect as an, as an analyst and as a South African on the structural consequences for our politics when the main opposition offering is not, is not palatable. 
Yeah, so I, uh, people used to say this in the day, it was probably started by Helen. They used to say this in the day very uncritically, and it always bothered me, um, was um, you get the politicians you deserve. Yeah. If you don't turn up yeah. at the, no, you don't get the politicians you deserve. Often, yes. you don't even get the option that you deserve. Right. <laughs> Sometimes you don't yeah. even get the choices you deserve. Mm. But it's a way in which a lot of political party leaders, I think, absolve themselves of the responsibility to make a compelling offer. Mm. It's like, I'm the ANC is corrupt. I'm not the ANC. Why aren't you voting for me? Mm. How can you not be voting for me? And there's maybe there's an economic model that, you know, applies a kind of not inhuman rationality in which that makes sense. Mm. That's not how people work. Mm. People, and it's certainly not how people vote. Mm. And it's certainly not how people work or how they vote in a system that doesn't have compulsory voting, right? Where people can stay away. That's a choice too. Yeah. So this thing of just saying, well, you know, you could vote for us, but you're so obsessed with the ANC, you keep going back to them like a victim of abuse. That's your fault. That's not our fault. Yeah. I think it's fundamentally untrue. Yeah. And I think it's, it's, it speaks to a refusal by, I think, existing political parties to, to <clears throat> do the work internally to be able to make an offering externally that is... And they rationalize away that laziness. Uh, the DA has often said, and I don't know if it started this weird... Uh, rationalization when you were still part of it, Lindy, where if, if, if they did, please explain to me why they think this is empirically true, because I think it's just an exercise in a weird kind of a variation on confirmation bias. Oh, well, I'm not going to bother trying to persuade Eusebius or Tampi, because quite frankly, they were never going to vote for us anyway. They were always beyond the reach. That's actually a very sound political strategy that is employed all over the world. So, um, but then, but then it to, must be accurate to, in, the, in the case in which you apply it, though. You know what I mean? Yeah. You can't, you can't use it as a post facto justification. Hundred percent. And you also can't say it about the people who are most likely to want to swim over to your side. Yes. Right. You've got to actually correctly identify them. Just to let you behind the curtain a little bit. In politics, you have. Uh, people who are for you, people who are doubtful, and people who are against you. And then in between for and doubtful, there's doubtful plus and doubtful minus. And in between um, against and doubtful, there's the same. Mm. So elections are not about the people on the far end of that bell curve. Absolutely. They're about the people in the middle. They're an exercise in convincing doubtful voters mm. to vote in one direction or the other with the support of the people on the extremes of either side of the bell curve mm. who really back you who will go to a tavern or a bri and say, how dare you say those things about the ANC? <laughs> that is my movement. Yeah. Or how dare you say those things about the EFF? We are going to bring land and jobs to yeah. this country. Right? Those are part of your, those are your surrogates. Yeah. And you have rallies for your surrogates. You have, um, you have door-to-doors with your surrogates. They're the people who are door knocking, who are doing voluntary work, like just amazing human beings. Right. So you do elections with your biggest supporters in, in an effort to win your doubtful voters. You're not trying to win the people on the other side of that bell curve. You're not going to get to them. And every rand you spend on them is a rand you could have been spending on somebody who's doubtful and could be won over by your message. Mm. So in that sense, in the cold, hard, hard political strategy you know, world, you, know, you don't need 100% to win an election. You need 50% plus one. Absolutely. You cross over the halfway mark of that bell curve, your work is done. Yeah. So... Um, 
is that is that is that intellectually sound rationally sound of course it is mm. is it a rhetorical <laughs> is it a rhetorical strategy you should deploy in an election campaign of course not <laughs> because there is no way to identify people as so i have a friend named brent um who worked for the democratic party in the us he actually worked for president obama and he says his brother and his sister-in-law were visited by a, a canvasser his sister-in-law is a a republican his brother is a democrat and a republican door knocker came to their door um and the brother answered the door and he said he asked you know is mrs so and so home and the brother said no and then he looked down at his clipboard he looked at the brother and he said thanks and he walked away <laughs> <laughs> because he understood mm. this person wasn't up for grabs the wife is up for grabs she's not available so i'm moving to the next door i don't have time for this I don't have a problem That's with that principle. I think that principle makes I think it makes sense, right? I I I often love sharing with especially friends who are scared about their reputations a unscientific but usefully unscientific formula that Chris Vick once explained to me from a PR point of view um that one uses in PR. Uh, certainly I think he he's probably used with many of his clients both corporate citizens as well as real human beings which is to say you're never going to be liked by everyone get over it but what you really want to do from a reputation management point of view is to go for the swing vote as it were and mm. not to worry about the super fans who will love you even if you have a rape conviction or not to worry about the haters who will hate you even if you get a Nobel prize in literature but it's mm. that person who goes yeah you know Sometimes I like Lindy Ware, sometimes she annoys me. Sometimes I like Eusebius, sometimes she annoys me. It's that person's sentiment that you want to be monitoring, as it were. And when there's a big story about you on page one or two of Sunday World coming out, we're going to be monitoring what those people have to say, not, not the confirmation bias that will occur at the extremes. But some DA leaders, some DA leaders seem to take that formula and they almost, they, 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 they pervert it, in my opinion, because some of them go, if the person ended up not voting for us, then they were always in one of the two extremes. Yeah, that's just silly. So here's the thing. That principle can only ever and exclusively apply to the six-month to one-year period that constitutes an election campaign. It's not your purpose in politics. Mm. You cannot go into politics and say to yourself, that's why we have such a fractured politics today. Mm. A combination of technology, which enables people to huddle, and um, that lazy dependence on your base and only the doubtfuls, yep. is, is now has extended from the campaign into how politicians engage with people on a permanent basis. That is the antithesis of leadership. So what gets lost if you apply that philosophy to your entire political career, which is wrong, is two things. You get a tendency of people to believe that they've only been elected to serve the people who elected them, mm. when the constitution says they have to serve everyone. Mm. But on top of that, you also get what gets lost is the art of persuasion and the belief that politics is an act of persuasion, mm. which it is. Because politics is a zero-sum game, there's only a fixed number of voters, fixed number of districts, fixed number of seats in parliament. It's a to and fro contestation in which there has to be movement, right, between one and the other, um, you know, where resources are plowed and energy is plowed into doing the intellectual work to change people's minds. 
right? It's the basis of a court application I made to the constitutional court about impeachment. Mm. You can't say I can't bring the motion to impeach because you know in your head in inverted commas I'm going to lose because the ANC has a majority. That's That fundamentally undermines the process. Absolutely. The process is an opportunity for me to convince a parliament of my peers that this person needs to be impeached by presenting evidence, by engaging in persuasion. If everything was dictated by numbers, then the, the process of persuasion in politics would be gone. And the belief that governments can change hands would be gone because you'd just be your, you'd be a lifer. Absolutely. You know, yeah, absolutely. this is my party and this is where I live because no one has swum over to my side of the river to try and make the case for why I should move. So there are the, there are the, there are the transactional realities of elections and the transactional uh, realities of like voter patterns. Another example of a voter pattern is people are more likely to abstain from voting if their political party uh, disappoints them than they are to vote for an alternative. Mm. So it's easier to get somebody who hasn't voted before to vote than it is to get someone who voted for your opponents to vote for you. Mm. Few people know that. Mm. So that, 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 that informs what people do in that six-month election period when they've got limited resources. They're competing with a fixed number of political organizations and they have a fixed number of seats to win. But it cannot inform your entire political career. Yeah. You can't base your political career on that. It's not a philosophy. It's a transactional means of winning elections when elections need to be won. But in between... You've got, to, you've got to talk to people because when you win, you're not just going to lead the people who voted for you. Mm. You're going to lead the people who thought you were, uh, you know, a sham, uh, a failure, whatever, a liar, whatever they thought about you, you're right? A traitor to your race, your gender, 100%. whatever. Which brings me Those to the way. Those are people you have yeah, Absolutely. How can you not know who they are and how can you not be willing to engage with them? I totally That's agree with you. Totally yeah, agree with and that brings me to the crux of that column you wrote two weeks ago, which is the, the big last theme I want to explore in this, in this conversation. And I, I really hope we have many more conversations in future. I, I, I love your insights. Um, to be slightly reductive, there are broadly two problems that we have as a, as a state. We have capacity issues, which speak to the state of our technocracy not being what it should be, and that in mm. part is the work that, that you do uh, with your institution. And then in tandem with that is a values gap that if you are purely a careerist, if you use jobs within the state in particular to dispense patronage, <coughs> then of course you are also not inculcating the right set of values in your in your civil servants so you can be low skilled and also have the wrong kind of values and then you have the worst of, of both problems yeah someone had asked you whether a tonal shift could make a massive difference to the fortunes of the democratic alliance and the yeah. question isn't peculiar to the da it can go for any political party and your response yeah. to them was was absolutely fantastic and i want you to speak into it Many people think the DA has a communications and tonality problem, and you yeah. were agitating against that view as being a good starting point, but but an insufficient and or inadequate reflection on what the tone problem is symptomatic of. Yes, yeah. So the the, the tone problem is a symptom, but it doesn't does not get to the illness, um, and the illness is an actual lack, lack of empathy. You. Um, first of all, the people who often say that are people who already support the DA, who say that to me, who say that in 
over coffee, over brides, whatever, they're already dear voters. They want to know how to get more people to come on side. And they think I'm on that mission too. And I'm like, I'm not a member of the DA. <laughs> <laughs> But it is an organization I lost relationships, you know, sweated, bled. I, I do have to say this, you see, because a lot of people assume I, have, I, I, I take some kind of glee in watching people who weren't part of my quote unquote faction in the party, you know, cocking up. I don't. Because it's like watching something that you built, that you sacrificed a lot to build, and then like watch somebody like tear it to shreds sure. with the most reckless abandon. It's incredibly painful. Um, it it makes me emotional and it makes me angry. So I, I really, please don't think for a moment that I take any kind of pleasure in in pointing these things out. And you're committed I, to our democracy. There's a there's a cost exactly. to the, to, 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 to there is the a democratic project. There is a huge cost. So, um, yeah, so it's often people who support the party who say things like this, who want to know, who want an insight into the psyche of the people who don't support the party. And... The, the truth is um, tone is not something you can, you, it's not something you can fake. Mm. People have tried. I'm not going to name names, but people in this country have tried. Mm. And it always falls flat because people are more insightful than we give them credit for. They smell a rat. So I got a lot of questions when I was in parliament politics about like, what's with your accent? Mm. <laughs> like, why do you speak <laughs> like that? You know, how can someone with an accent like yours Mm. go like appeal to well because it's authentically who i am i can't change my accent <laughs> this is how i speak yes. that thing was baked in the oven years ago it's <laughs> over right i also can't change how you think about me by peppering my language with vernac right this is Zulu's my mother tongue but i'm not going to performatively speak it for you in order to you know address some cultural deficit that you think i suffer from yes. right but some politicians fall for that trick and they go, okay, fine. Let me code switch my way through this mm. and hope that people won't notice. Mm. <laughs> but they do. Eventually they put two and two together. And the truth is you have no obligation in politics but to be authentically yourself. Mm. But you also have an obligation in a political organization, regardless of your ideology. And this is what's so great about teaching a program that is ideologically free but is focused on values is you have an obligation to be connected to your voters, to be connected to the people you claim to want to serve, yes. to know them, to walk with them, to visit them, to know where, where they live, what they eat, what, what they go through, when their last meal was, mm. when the last time they worked was. Mm. At every level of society, you have a, a duty to walk the length of, and breadth of a country, understanding your people. And with that must come empathy, especially in a country like ours. Mm. If, if that doesn't come with empathy, then, then you probably shouldn't be in politics. So when, when there's this kind of like gleeful, disconnected, um, self-referential mm. bubble thinking in which people just, you know, reflect each other's ideas back and forth to each other mm. and never allow country views in, what ends up happening is an inability to reflect, an inability to self-critique, self-correct, um, and to recognize that you're not you're not perfect. You don't have the monopoly on the moral high ground or on the right answers to the most complex questions our society faces. So, Linda, if I understand you, if I understand you correctly, and I think it's such a beautiful insight, which is why that particular paragraph in your column stuck with me 
even though the entire column was was a very good analysis of the debacle that had played out in Phoenix with the DA's, quite frankly, short-termism in terms of trying to leveraging racial discontent for, for political gain. But that particular paragraph stood out for me because as someone who is a debating coach, a communications coach, and who thinks very long and hard about, um, about speechifying, um, I thought, wow, this is a really, really critically important insight that many of us as experts when it comes to communications haven't really reflected on, which is to say, yeah. which is to say that not only is communicating a compelling message more than an exercise in soft skills that you have developed at um, your local Toastmasters club, but furthermore, how you communicate tells me something about who you are. Precisely. And listen, another principle by which I live and by which I run my organization is that you can't teach, teach ethics, but you can, te you can teach technique. <laughs> so you can't teach somebody who's charismatic but lacks the, the capacity to self-reflect all the stuff I've just spoken about mm -hmm. and is unethical. You can't teach them how to be those things. But you can easily teach an introvert with great values and a strong vision for yes. what they want to achieve, yeah. but who fundamentally ha has never had to give a speech, has never had to write a press statement. Mm -hmm. you, can you can teach them how to cope with that reality yeah. and how to do it well. Absolutely. But it has to come from inside. Mm -hmm. You can't teach people values. <laughs> they have to have them to begin with. And look, values can be eroded over time because often, you know, moral relativism means that, you know, if you watch the State Capture Commission, there's people who, you know, borrowed money for a car or a sister who had debt or whatever, right? And snowballs. Hmm. Corruption snowballs like that. So fundamentally, if, you, if you've gone into politics and government for the right reasons, those can, they, they can be highlighted, they can shine through. But we, you can't change your reasons midstream and be like, oh, I went in for the wrong reasons, but I've now decided I'm going in for the right reasons. Like, that's not really how it works. So, yeah, to answer your question, tone is a reflection of who you are authentically. It's, a, it's, a, it's also a reflection of what you nurture inside an organization. Because let me say, when you, when you wield power inside an organization, you dictate its culture. You dictate whether there's a culture of intellectual sparring or, or you know, speaking truth to power or whether there's a culture of, um, you know, conformity and, uh, and, 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 and unwillingness to challenge even when you see things being done wrong, right? That culture comes from the top. It comes from the top of an organization. It does not come from the bottom. And it's set very quickly and very easily simply because you hold a lot of people's careers in your hands when you have power. And people make those transactional and transformational choices at the same time. They're like, am I going to lose my membership and then my seat if I do this? Am I going to be embroiled in a disciplinary year that is, you know, political in nature? Or should I just keep my mouth shut? Yeah. But if you know that you've inculcated an open culture of speech and inquiry in a mm. party. Remember when Ben Turok abstained from the secrecy bill vote? Mm. And was taken like to the carpet by a chief who had been in politics for less time than he had. That was just the consequence of abstention, right? Mm -hmm. Not even voting in favor. So I think how, how you, and, and 
how you lead an organization quickly trickles down. People quickly understand what the rules are. And so you have a responsibility to, yeah, to not turn your organization into Mm. a brittle, unsympathetic, unempathetic, cruel, and maliciously, you know, you know, focused on outcomes at, at all costs. Absolutely. Uh, institution. You've got to have some red lines. Listen, yeah. you you are extremely busy, but just a quick bonus question. Um, we are 10, 11 days away from the elections. Some people think we've got a political crisis and it's not even worth voting. Um, I'm not going to articulate the reasons for my position, but I want to state it that I want you to state your position and you must give reasons for your position. I think that although voting is not legally compulsory, I think that it is imprudent not to vote. And I think that one should vote. And I think if you are disillusioned and you really don't want to vote for any of the available candidates, that um, that it is marginally better to spoil your ballot than to not go and vote at all. What is your view? Do you think one must go and vote? Oh. And, and what do you say to people who say, I would like to, but I'm, the system is broken? Yeah, no, uh, you, you see, Bess, there's no point in spoiling a, your ballot in a voluntary voting system. Spoiled ballots are for, for systems where voting is compulsory, where you have no choice but to show up. Spoiling your ballot in a, in a voluntary system is like not turning up at all. Just don't turn up if you don't want to vote. But obviously, my well, view the, is. I mean, the difference, right? But I, I don't. I don't want to fully explain my view. I'll do it separately. One, one. Um, if you don't go and vote at all, there's at least an ambiguity. We don't know whether you were lazy or whether you have reflective views. Whatever the. Oh, you want people. You want people to stand up and be counted. Yeah. But again, they still won't be counted. <laughs> they won't be counted. Um, but look, there'll be a list of spoiled ballots, um, but they won't count towards anything. So no, I, I see your yeah, point. Yeah, yeah. But just in terms of turnout, it, it's not empathy. You know what I mean? It, yeah. It's not inherently empathetic. I, I hear you, but I, but I, I do. I get this question a lot. That's why I've latched onto it. I do have a very strong view about spoiling ballots, which is like if you're going to yeah. show up. At so the, what's what's your view? So people vote for know. someone. Mm. So here's a, here is um, here is something that has only come to me in the last two days. Um, I think it's Open Cities in Durban has launched a tool that enables you mm, to I love it. I had put, a look in your address, <laughs> put in your address and it aggregates everybody who's running in your ward, what party they're running for, how old they are, and whether they're running in more than one ward. Mm, mm. The latter is an incredibly important point because people run in multiple wards to amass PR votes for the topper. They don't do it out of a genuine interest in serving people. So at, straight off the bat, you want to eliminate everyone who's voting, who's standing in more than, say, five wards because they're not committed. It, yeah. <laughs> right? That's information that weirdly was never available to us until Open Cities created this tool. So don't vote for people who are cynically trying to collect PR votes so they can scuttle their way in through the back door. Mm. That's the first thing. The second thing is, that tool gives you a lot of information about, for example, independents who are not really independents. As soon as you Google their name, click on their name, you can see immediately if they had a previous party affiliation. Yeah. And if they're running for that party and that party is not field, fielding a candidate, mm. that means they're a proxy, right? And then so use the tool, Open Cities Durban, just Google them. Uh, you'll eventually find it. Mm. Put in your address and figure out who's running in your ward. And make your choices 
based on what you read about the candidates who are standing in your ward, right? So that's the first ballot. Mm. Pick people who you think are going to do the best job for you. Don't ask yourself, don't treat this like a national election. It's a big mistake we make in local elections. Your, the outcomes of this election will affect you directly at local level. Don't decide to, to vote because, you know, some party that's, you know, regional to the Western Cape, but you're in Gauteng, you like them, so you just vote for them. That's not going to help you, right? It's going to maybe contribute to a PR vote that they may or may not get a seat out of, but ultimately it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a lost cause. Vote for someone you care about or who you think can do a good job. Mm-hmm. That's number one. Number two, when you get to the PR ballot, Focus your energies on what that party has said in your municipality, in the city of Johannesburg, in the city of Eteguini, in the you know, municipality of Makanda, wherever it is you are. Yeah. What have they said? Who's shown up? What have they said on door-to-door and you know, national leadership visits, etc.? What are they going to do? What, what are they offering you? Yes. And is that offer in any way compelling? Secondly, the only PR, political parties are not the only people contesting PR seats this year. Community associations can contest as well. So there are a lot of community associations, ratepayers associations, church groups, whatever, who are fielding candidates in the PR list. Mm. If you know one locally and you see it on the ballot, vote for it. It's going to go to council. It's The candidate's going to go to council and they're going to stand up for the values that you clearly stand up for if you support them. Mm. So don't limit yourself uh, to... <laughs> Don't let political parties limit what's on offer for you. Absolutely. Don't let political parties dictate for you what is the right thing to do and what is the wrong thing to do. Big parties will say voting for small parties is a waste. Mm. Small parties will say that big parties have failed. You give us a chance. Try and see through what their interest is Mm. and ask yourself, what is your interest as a voter? And depending on how engaged you are with your municipality, is this a councillor who, when you call them and tell them there's a problem with the water, they're actually going to answer? Or are they an instrument of something bigger? Um, That's how I'm voting. I've looked my my ward councillors up. I've decided which one I'm backing. It's a new candidate. I'm super excited. Um, And, yeah, I've I've decided who I'm going to vote for on the PR ballot as well. But this is international election. Do not be fooled into thinking this is the same as a national election. And you see, let me just say again, with the benefit of being outside politics, because I understand the incentives inherent in what political parties are doing. They're going for as much as they can under, you know, stretched circumstances. That makes sense to me, but it doesn't make sense to me as a voter. So don't let party interests dictate what is actually a necessity for you at the local level. Mm. Vote for the people who are going to, de- mm. to deliver. Don Ramaphosa may have come to your community to do it door to door. He's not going to be running your municipality. Mm. He's not. Mm. And you may like him. I like him immensely uh, and support him to the hilt as our president. But he's not going to run the city of Joburg. So why should I vote for the ANC? And dare, dare <laughs> I say it, the risk of making them fall over themselves... John Steenhuizen may be a gaff a second on national TV, but a but a particular DA councillor in your ward may well be the right person to fix the pipes. Exactly, exactly, absolutely. Um, yeah. So, and pay attention to the parties that have bothered to field mayoral candidates. I'm following some wonderful mayoral candidates: Brett in Cape Town, Paul, here, mm. a couple of others who are fantastic. So remember, they get voted in at council level. So in order for them to become mayor, you need to vote for their party on the PR list. 
so they have as many seats as possible to make that person. All I'm asking you to do is be a little bit technical about these choices. Yeah. It's different to a national. Yeah. And you might just get the counselor you actually deserve, not the one <laughs> parties. Lindy, well, congratulations on the success of the Apolitical Academy. The work that you do is important and also your voice on the national stage. And thank you so much for your generosity in this conversation. Thanks, Eusebius. It was always, it's good to see you as always. Thanks for inviting me. Cheers.